Hey, Slava Connection listeners, it's Lara. Let's talk sports. We had Dr. Johanna Mellis on the pod. She's an assistant professor of world history at Ursinus College, and we chatted about her research on Hungary, on Cold War sports, on uh, athlete activism. We really got into it, and it was a fascinating conversation. So take a listen. Four, three, two, one. It's not uh, typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection. Brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Johanna Mellis, thank you so much for joining us on the Slavic Connection today. We really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us a little bit. Yeah, no, I'm really excited to be here. I think this will be a really great conversation. And I'm a huge UT Austin fan outside of football. Yeah, I'm also not a football person. And ironically, I went to both Penn State and now I'm going to UT with absolutely no knowledge of that whatsoever. I'm the perfect, perfect candidate for all these schools. So I wanted to kind of dive right into your research, first and foremost. You've done a lot of phenomenal work on Hungary, on Cold War era sport history. But I first wanted to kind of get a little bit of background on you and what got you interested in kind of using the lens of oral history, public history to examine sports and and why Hungary of, of all countries? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll try to sort of be concise because there are a bunch of sort of different parts to this answer in terms of like, where where did this come from? So part of it is that I was a D1 athlete and I grew up swimming, club swimming, and then so then swam four years at college. We were a very sort of low-level D1 program, but still a D1 program. And then I was looking to start grad school doing European, modern European history, and I didn't have any German or Russian language background, which for most schools, those are like, you need one of the two. Obviously, both would be great, but a lot of them, you need those language schools going into a program. And my partner, who at the time was my boyfriend, he was starting um, at University of Florida and the master's program, and I was taking a gap year anyways. And so came with him and was sort of figuring out what is grad school about? You know, what are the um, what are the requirements for it? And I think like you all have at UT Austin at UF at the University of Florida, we had a center your free studies program that offered uh, government funding to learn lesser known languages. And, and I was already interested in your in Hungarian history, just kind of being like, a small-ish country that not a lot of people know about. And so I started getting into it that way to sort of pay for my master's and also learn some language skills. And then just like visited Budapest in 2010 and just was like, oh my gosh, I want to keep coming back. And 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 Hungarians are a really interesting, really wonderful people that have a really, a really interesting history that has a lot of challenging moments. And so I started studying Hungarian that way. And then when it came to sort of sport history, and I'll get to the oral history part in a second, is that I was essentially picking a dissertation topic and my advisor, she always wants and wanted her students to really choose a topic they're really passionate about that they could pursue for like a decade or more. She's like, you know, you really need to learn to love it because hating your topic. You're going to come in. Yeah. She's like, this is a huge commitment. <laughs> and she's like, you know, don't do a topic that you think I'll be interested or something because that's not going to sustain you. At the time, um, I wasn't doing anything with sport history. I didn't even really know that it was a field, but I was coaching part-time to earn money on the side in Gainesville. And she w- she told me like, oh, you should read this book, uh, Bob Edelman, Spartak Moscow. Like this, she's on a book committee and she's like, we just awarded this major book prize for this book. You should check it out and kind of see how sport history, sport history can be done. And so I read it and just totally loved it and was like really, really hooked. And then the way that I got into oral history was that it was a bit serendipitous in that my Hungarian language instructor at UF, her father-in-law was a fencer for the Hungarian social estate from like the mid 60s to the mid 80s. And so once I started telling her about what I was thinking of doing, she's like, oh, you should talk to him. And she's like, you know, I'm sure he would let you interview him. And his English is pretty good. When you interviewing someone in their native language can be a real challenge. At the time, I was really excited about that. And she was like, yeah, he had like he traveled all over the world and he had these amazing smuggling stories. And I think she told me, you know, some of his stories are not ones you that you would find in an archive. And so she kind of started planting some seeds in my in my head. And then when I interviewed him, it just was like amazing. And, and like the human connection was really great. And I just left the interview on like such a high and like could not shut up about it. 
I called my partner and was like, this was so cool. I'm talking to a human. And it's not just like looking at these documents and documents can be exciting and really invigorating in their own way. But for me, I love the, the personal connection. And so, so the, the project really took off from there. And I just really dove more and more into the oral histories. And, and in part because, you know, when you're studying any kind of history and you're relying on archival documents, particularly at like a national or a state archive or an institutional one, you know, you're really relying on what the institution said about people in their documents, right? And they created documents to serve a certain government and often an imperialist agenda. So they leave a lot of things out. And so um, as I was kind of doing the interviews and also doing the archival research, you know, I was sort of trying to figure out how do you pair these things together? And then I think when you study, I mean, when you study history in, in general, but I think especially kind of authoritarian periods of history, such as, you know, communism, but also fascism, racial fascism, is, you know, you understanding what people went through, like, and, and understanding how they've conceptualized it to other people through their memories and what they're willing to share. It's a really, really interesting way of analyzing history and really understanding how subjective it is and how political it is and how important it is to people's lives. So that's a very long-winded way of kind of coming up with an answer to your question. There is really truly so much merit in uncovering all these details that, as you mentioned, like get kind of glazed over or forgotten when you kind of take the big picture top-down approach and finding all these nuggets of information really is so rewarding. And I mean, let, let's get into the rewards because you've done so much research on Hungarian athletes, both in general, um, we can touch on Operation Griffin, but in, in personal stories as well of actual athletes, you really analyze their their story from, from the beginning to the yeah, end. Yeah, really, so, so I mean, I guess I could start with athlete stories and then that'll kind of maybe lead me into talking about Operation Griffin and sort of that that moment in time infected people's lives. But the, the thing is with the athlete stories, and like I think this is the case for if you're studying, I mean, really the case for everybody, because cultural figures are different from people who are not cultural figures, but you know, they're not any more special than sort of everyday people. But one thing when when you're when you're analyzing cultural figures is that, you know, it's never just about the cultural product they're producing, whether it be sports, whether it be music, whether it be writing inevitably the politics of the time and their own personal identities and sort of sense of self, all of that gets intermeshed into their lives within their cultural sphere, outside of it, et cetera. And so when it came to the athlete stories, I mean, one of the things that I really got a lot out of it were the, the ways in which athletes demonstrated or, or sort of tried to demonstrate some form of agency over their lives. And, you know, I focus on a very specific time period, but I, I really want to emphasize that this is the case of every single context, right? And it's it's not just specific to sports, although that's what I focus on, sport history. So, that, I mean, you get so much from people's stories that are not in the archives. And so I already talked a little bit about this one, this first person I interviewed and his involvement with smuggling goods all over the world. I mean, that's not something that I really was successful in finding much evidence of in the archives unless an athlete was caught for smuggling or someone chose to actually write about it in documents. And so then you're only really looking at athletes when they are sort of subservient to state needs and sort of they're sort of placed in a bit of sort of a, a position of victimization and oppression, which absolutely is part of the case some of the time. But then when you speak to the athletes themselves, I mean, they took a lot of pride in what they were doing and they really were very acutely aware, not, not only of sort of East versus West politics, but politics within the Eastern Bloc countries, and then obviously what's going on within the broader Cold War and decolonization is that they were aware of what was going on. And a lot of them are figuring out how could they maximize the fact that they could travel abroad and they could leave the so-called, you know, Iron Curtain in the Eastern Bloc and really sort of experience um, commercial activities and cultural activities in other countries. So I have a lot of stories about like smuggling. I have a lot of stories that came out about athletes who defected, which kind of leads me to talking about Operation Griffin. And Operation Griffin was a U.S. Um, government operation. And what happened is that, and, and I take all of this from my good friend Toby Ryder's book, Cold War Games. So this is not my original research. Toby's, Toby's work is amazing and really, really groundbreaking. So he essentially showed how in the 1950s, the U.S. government was getting increasingly interested in figuring out, you know, how can they demonstrate their, their so-called sort of soft and cultural power worldwide but do it in a way so that they are hiding their own governmental influence in cultural diplomacy, right? That they, they want to fight the Cold War on cultural grounds so that they're not actually fighting like physical battles, but they don't want to show how much effort they're putting into it. 
because if it looks like it's dominated by the government, that is communism, and we, we have to avoid looking communist at all costs. So that's the kind of irony of a lot of what Toby and other people's work shows is that the U.S. government was super invested in fighting the Cold War on, on sport fields and arenas and the Olympic Games, but it's not as obvious as what we saw in the Eastern Bloc because they wanted to appear as anti-communist as capitalist as possible. So what Toby shows is that the U.S. government, essentially, um, they were developing these so-called state private networks to hide their governmental influence. So they would sort of work with wealthy individuals and people who own companies and industries to kind of implement some of the policy goals and have sort of these quote unquote individuals who are independent from government influence kind of fighting the Cold War and, and being very anti-communist and being super pro-capitalist and very American nationalist, but again, hiding that governmental influence. And so what happens in 1956 is there's this major revolution in Hungary, which I, I think uh, your listeners and your past guests probably know about, where the Hungarians either try to throw off the communist state or they try to reform it. There's sort of two schools of thought about that. But regardless, what happens is there's like a mass exodus of Hungarians outside of the state. And over 200,000 Hungarians leave, and largely they go through Austria, and some go south through Yugoslavia. Now, when it came to the athletes, uh, what's really interesting is that the Melbourne Olympic Games, which were the 1956 Summer Games, they began in, in Melbourne, Australia, about um, like a month after the Hungarian Revolution began. So the Hungarian Revolution starts October 23rd, and the Melbourne Olympics start in like late November. So about a month after, so the, the Olympic team leaves and athletes and even sport officials and coaches, they, they don't really know what they're going to do. They don't know if their lives are going to be in danger if they go back. They don't know about their family safety. And so they're really kind of tossing up all these different options. And what happens in the U.S. is that there are a bunch of Hungarian American emigres who came who came to the U.S. during the interwar period in the 1940s. And so they essentially some of them get together and they decide that it would it would sort of be a cultural propaganda coup to help a bunch of Hungarian Olympic athletes defect to the U.S. And so a lot of these people, some of these people are wealthy and have high connections. And so they get in touch with people working at Time and Company and Sports Illustrated. Um, in particular, there's Henry Luch. He owned Time Magazine, and he had really tight relations with Eisenhower, with Alan Dulles of the CIA. So really, really tight connections. And other people such as C.D. Jackson, who also worked for Sports Illustrated, he was considered, Jackson was considered a leading propaganda expert for the CIA for fighting the Cold War. So these are people that have very political interests, and they essentially... They sort of convince people up the chain of command to approve support for these defections. And Toby's work does looks at how sort of challenging it is, but they do get support to do this. And they call it Operation Griffin. And, and what they do is that they see it as a way to sort of get or create propaganda tools through these athletes that might defect to the U.S. And so 34 Hungarian Olympic athletes and coaches and officials leave and four, Romanian, four Romanians of Hungarian ethnicity, they also leave and they come to the U.S. with the help of Operation Griffin. And then Sports Illustrated funds, directly funds sort of a tour of what's called the, the quote unquote freedom tour, right? This very pro-democratic capitalist language of like the freedom tour where they are going to parade athletes around the country in sort of these exhibition matches and these competitions to sort of demonstrate, you know, like these athletes have defeated communism, you know, they've showed how terrible it is. And look at the, you know, the U.S. can offer them freedom and all these things. But it was also to, to get university athletic departments and coaches to take a look at these athletes and the coaches and the Hungarian athletes and coaches and essentially offer scholarships and coaching jobs to some of the defectors. The, the challenge is, is that the Hungarian athletes coming from a, a, a communist system that fully, you know, pays them for their athletic labor, gives them health care, gives them institutional support. You know, they don't understand what capitalism is going to be about. So they totally um, don't understand you know, the NCAA system or their, the amateurism in the U.S. And so they end up really struggling once they get here. But I, the Operation Griffin story, I think, is a really good example of both kind of domestic politics in Hungary influencing sport, sport politics influencing kind of the domestic um, cultural diplomacy of a nation and being in Hungary, and then also how a, a so-called sort of democratic, non-communist government uses its political um, influence to, to help athletes defect and be propaganda tools here. 
one of the more, I think, fascinating comparisons that you bring out in a lot of your research is that comparison of the capitalist sports system versus the socialist sports system. The the payment difference is absolutely an aspect where here in the U.S., you know, athletes weren't being paid. They were expected to work. Whereas in, in Hungary, they, they were being paid. They were being supported to continue their sport. But there was this additional aspect, the propaganda aspect of it, how it was being framed, where in Hungary, you know, the coaching was strict and harsh and robotic, whereas here was this aspect of freedom. You could do what you wanted, which I found interesting. It was it was a level of propaganda I hadn't expected because it still kind of continues today as well. Absolutely. And that's something that I started to develop a little bit in my journal of sport history piece that I'm hoping, you know, whenever I'm done with my current project, I can I can pivot to that one and kind of elaborate on that even more because I was sort of putting out some feelers. But it's exactly is that essentially what happens is that these Hungarian athletes and coaches that are brought over here for a few years, the sports media and, and the broader media portrays them pretty favorably. You know, again, it's these sort of victims of communism who are now beneficiaries of capitalism. And, you know, they are like beacons of freedom and, you know, all this very heavily politicized uh, rhetoric and language. But what happens is that within a few years, that sort of more favorable coverage ends up sort of ebbing away. And what you have is you have the sports media and, again, the broader political media in general, you know, portraying athletes as sort of these these um, athlete defectors as like these sort of selfish athletes. They don't want to work. They just want to be paid. And that some of that does start early on after they get here, but it becomes increasingly more so, especially in, in the early 1960s. Um, and there are a couple athletes, you know, that really want to try to continue their sport careers in the U.S. because that was sort of what had been promised to them. And a lot of athletes end up leaving uh, the sport realm and kind of going into uh, middle-class professions and white-collar jobs. But the ones who stayed, they really struggled because they had to work, you know, a full-time job. Oftentimes, a lot of it was manual labor at the beginning because they didn't speak. A lot of them didn't. Most of them didn't speak English. Only one of them spoke English fluently. And then they had to find time outside of working to compete. And then also find time to make money to, to, to travel and to go to these competitions. I mean, they're, you know, athletes, you know, athletes are exploited today in the U.S. and they were just outrageously exploited at the time and just expected to devote all of their energies to, to pay for every aspect of their training and, and competing, which is just I mean, it's, it's almost impossible. And, and so what happens is by the 1960s, as there's like one running coach in particular, his name is Mihai Ikloi. He had trained a really amazing crop of runners in Hungary, including Laszlo Tabori, who is the third man in the world to run a sub four minute mile, which is like amazing. And he really struggles in California to, to, to develop a club team that, that could pay him a living wage and that can sort of sustain itself. And a lot of these clubs at the time, they were dependent on wealthy donors and also athletes who came from money. And so a Hungarian athlete defector who doesn't have connections to wealthy people and also has very particular ways about, you know, in terms of how he thinks um, he should be coaching and stuff like that. It just didn't jive well. And so um, the media coverage you're talking about is that you have Sports Illustrated, which had previously been really praising these athletes, kind of turning a little bit and kind of calling this Hungarian coach Mihai Igloi, you know, that he just punches numbers into a calculator and then his athletes produce results and that he's very robotic and authoritarian and, and totalitarian even, whereas these American coaches, you know, they fly by the seat of their pants and they are sort of very loosey-goosey and they are adventurous and capitalist. You know, it's again very much this communism versus capitalist language. And, and it's just really, really interesting. And so, you know, in a couple of years, I look forward to kind of diving into that more. But that language is so stark and it just is, is really obvious when you when you actually find it in there. Yeah, especially with the, with the payment question, the, that discussion has continued where, you know, people are saying, oh, you should just play sports for the love of sports. This is gratifying to you. You enjoy this. But athletes should be paid for their work. They're putting in hours and hours of time. We've seen that with the um, NCAA discussion as well with football players and that whole argument. But uh, you did uh, participate in an article where, you know, there's extra layers to that. It's not just the payment question. There's also race involved. Right. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at college sport and, you know, it's not to say that racism, racism was not involved in sort of the Eastern European sport context. And I know you you've dove into that with other guests regarding other topics. But I mean, for sure, in the U.S., sort of people call it the sport industrial complex, which is sort of like the the term used to describe sport. 
especially sports like soccer, where parents have to spend so much money in order to sort of keep up with the Joneses and ensure that their athletes can be can be the best they can be. And then at the college level, I mean, the exploitation just, you know, really continues. And even, you know, in this sense, and some people have called it like a plantation system. Some people have called it like a system of Jim Crow era exploitation. And really, it's like racial capitalism. Some people say on steroids because it's these predominantly black and brown athletes who are just totally, I mean, exploited for their labor. And, you know, they are coached by predominantly white coaches and athletic departments that are largely run by white people, largely white men, you know, in these schools that are funded, you know, there's so many layers of sort of whiteness here. And then you have these athletes on the ground, these mainly black and brown athletes who are told to just like be grateful and shut up and play. And, and even with, you know, name image likeness, I mean, you talked about how it's not just the money aspect, like it, the money aspect is a huge part of it, but it's sort of how are athletes being, how are athletes able to get paid and, and sort of how are they be taken care of in other ways? And so I, I, on the podcast, we talk a lot about abuse and sort of other sexual abuse, physical abuse and other sorts of things as well. But it's just sort of like exploitation and sort of racial exploitation in particular, just through and through college sports. There, there is some writing as well about, you know, in, in terms of like the system that we were discussing, the socialist versus capitalist system, um, you had athletes that came back to Hungary and managed to actually kind of use the system almost, I wouldn't even say to their favor, but they kind of just learned how to utilize the system in a way that worked for them. Right. So what happens in, in Hungary is that whereas before 1956, the sport um, sort of system was very dominated by sort of state politics and very Stalinist era politics and sort of sport officials used a lot of repression in order to help keep athletes in line in order to prevent them from defecting because a couple athletes had defected in the late 1940s. And so they're really trying to prevent athletes from defecting and ensure that their behavior abides by the rules of, of the state, rules that are always unclear, which really was not easy for athletes. But then they also, you know, doled out special privileges, including, you know, these forms of payment for athletes through fake paper jobs where athletes, you know, they didn't have to actually work at their jobs. They just sort of showed up to get a paycheck. And then what happens after 56 is I mentioned there were 34 Hungarian Olympic athletes, coaches and officials, but there's over 300 total Hungarian athletes who defect to the West. There are a lot of like youth soccer players, which I haven't been able to look much into, but FIFA actually has documents kind of testifying to like hundreds of Hungarian athletes that defect to the West. So, I mean, there's just, there's just so much work on, on this topic that needs to be done. And the, the, the sport community is really reeling at N56 with all these defections. And just like the, the, the state leadership is reeling because their legitimacy has been totally trashed. Both their domestic political legitimacy, legitimacy, but also their their international legitimacy, and within the sport realm, was also really interesting. Is that even though, and I know we're going to get into this later, you know, even though the Olympic Games and the International Olympic Committee is like very corrupt and it's very Western imperialist, despite all these things, one of the sort of mottos that the the IOC and FIFA and other organizations really hang their hat on is that these international competitions are arenas where people can sort of come together in an apolitical way to achieve peace through sport. And, and so there were concerns that Hungary was, was not a member of this sort of peaceful, sport-loving international community because of the violence 56, because of the defection. So there's sort of like a lot of things going on in Hungary. And so the sport officials decide, you know, that we, we cannot force athletes to stay in Hungary. So we need to sort of persuade them to stay. We need to not, not coerce them, but persuade them. And so they really back off of their repressive tactics, although athletes are still, you know, monitored by the state security and the secret police. And, you know, they're still punished if they're if they're if, you know, smuggle too many goods or whatever. But they really kind of lay off the punishments and the repression and they offer more athletes than before the, the privileges and the payment and, you know, the rewards that they were offering to like very elite athletes in the 50s. So you have a broader sort of pool of athletes who are receiving these benefits and, and, and athletes are kind of thinking, you know, like this is a, an okay system for me. And especially, you know, they, they see their, they see their, co their colleagues struggling in the U.S. Uh, system. And, and some athletes, as you noted, some of them do come back and they understand that, you know, like socialist hungry actually kind of provides a lot of the things that I need. For example, I actually get paid for my sporting labor. You know, I get healthcare, which isn't the best in the world, but you know, no one's going to go bankrupt paying for healthcare. I'm laughing, you knowing our own history here. <laughs> I was about to say how novel. <laughs> I, I know. And it's not a laughing matter, but like it is so ridiculous. 
And so even though athletes have more connections worldwide than they ever had before, because athletes had gone to Australia, they'd gone to Switzerland, they'd gone to West Germany, they'd gone all over the world. So they knew more people abroad, but more of them chose to stay in Hungary and only a handful of people defect after 56. Um, and I think that's why the Hungarian case is really interesting. And it's not to say, you know, some people will call me like a communist apologist, especially from like a, a sports, an American sports perspective, which is so inundated with this pro-capitalist propaganda that is just at the heart of like the, the modern U.S. sports system. So I, I get that a fair bit. You know, athletes were monitored by the state. They did have to be careful what they did and, you know, not smuggling too many goods. Some of them were in prison and things like that. So I'm not trying to paint this overly rosy picture. But, you know, athletes defected. They sort of showed their dissatisfaction with the state. They showed their agency. And, they're, you know, the sport officials, they actually sort of listened. And they said, okay, we need to reform our policies. And it was something that benefited athletes. Um, so I think that's, you know, really interesting, regardless of whatever context we're looking at. And we can look at, you know, the contemporary one in the U.S. and worldwide. And that, you know, athletes are like, you know, screaming out saying, you know, we, we protest our conditions. These are awful. And people are just like... We can't do anything about it. You know, athletes need to tough it up. Yep. You know, they're being babies, whatever. So this is, I think it's kind of a unique case. And, and I could go on more and more, but I'll just sort of end there. And if you have follow-ups, I'm happy to answer them. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, you present a perfect opportunity to get into the contemporary parts of this, of sports athletes showing their agency. A lot of this has been discussed, especially after the Tokyo Olympics, where you had athletes standing up for themselves. You had athletes, you know, despite the kind of ban, not ban on making a political protests during the games, like athletes were still doing it. And that was still part of the discussion. So, you know, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on the Tokyo Olympics, what you thought about it, especially with the gymnastics side of things with Simone Biles speaking up for herself. And as you said, some people were going on about how she's a big baby about it. But thankfully, that also, you know, ushered in questions of mental health as well. But that's a multi very multi-tiered question. But yeah, let's let's just start with Tokyo Olympics thoughts. Yeah. So so first of all, I'll be honest, I didn't watch that much of it, except for there was one time I hung out with some people and they had it on and I, I, I still wanted to watch it. So I watched it. I mean, for me, yeah, like you said, I think the athlete activism is just what really, really stands out. Some really interesting moments of athlete solidarity across nations, which you don't typically see in part because the Olympics really thrives off of like historical clashes. Like it isn't actually about a political piece if they really want these political clashes because that helps them earn money and legitimacy and gain viewership. I mean, it is amazing in a lot of ways how athletes, particularly athletes from minoritized communities. So we see athletes of color, we see queer and LGBTQ athletes who are more and more feeling empowered and comfortable enough to really speak their truth based off what they think is best for their bodies. And it's amazing. And I like applaud it a thousand percent. And, and of course, you know, Simone Biles is, is really the, the case in point here. And it's amazing that her team supported her and so many people supported her. And it wasn't just like her team. But for example, you also saw like Russian gymnasts who were like clapping for Simone Biles and Simone Biles clapping for them. So I think that was really, really amazing to see that. Someone asked me um, recently on another podcast if I thought, you know, what we saw this summer between Naomi Osaka and Becca Myers, who is a Paralympian who pulled out from the Paralympics because they wouldn't allow her to bring her mom, even though she needed it. Somebody asked me, like, is this a turning point? And I, I mean, that's a really like loaded and heavy term. But part of it is that I think you're seeing you're seeing more and more minoritized athletes showing, demonstrating their agency. But you you still see very little from like cishet uh, white athletes. I mean, almost, almost none. And that is, and, and that's when I talk about swimming, which I talk about a lot, because I was a swimmer, you know, you see almost none, even though Simone Manuel is like, stop asking me these questions, you know, being an, a, a, a black Olympic swimmer, like stop asking me these questions that you're not, you're not asking white swimmers and just the, the repeated silence. And this is in so many sports. And so we still see a lot of complicity on behalf of, of cishet white athletes. And then you don't you don't really see any policy change. So that's kind of the issue is that, you know, athletes, uh, black and brown and, and queer athletes are doing amazing things, but we're not seeing the policy changes. So I guess I'm I'm feeling a little bit like more hopeful about what athletes did. But, you know, in terms of the long term impact, I'm just not sure it still needs to be borne out. I, I completely agree with you. I think there was so many telling moments where 
you wanted other people to speak up, but there's just this weight and pressure and responsibility on just the people of color, on just the LGBTQ athletes to speak up for themselves when they need support. Because, you know, where was the support where they banned that that cap? That, you know, because it didn't fit the shape of the head, suddenly we can't have that cap, which is specifically targeting black and people like black athletes you know nobody nobody said anything it just happened so clearly you know baby steps yes but so many moments were demonstrated of saying we still have so much work to do absolutely and, and that's a, the soul cap thing is a great horrific but really great example and another one is um what was it the norwegian beach handball team or beach volleyball i can't remember what it is there was the, the issue in bulgaria with the, the the norwegian women's team refusing to wear the like short uh, bottoms and 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 wearing shorts and and on the one hand, it's wonderful that they said, you know, what, we're going to wear something that makes us feel comfortable because like every, you know, athlete should wear what they feel comfortable wearing. But then the outcry from white feminists that was just so lacking in any kind of intersectional understanding and journalists, especially Muslim journalists being like, hello, like, what about the hijab bans? Like, what about all these other ways? that these institutions of sport have been oppressing black and brown athletes and telling us what we can and can't wear. Like, it's not just about these shorts. And like, it's great that white women have decided that this is an issue that's worth fighting, but like extend your solidarity, extend your support. Um, which again, I didn't really see that much. You know, there were some amazing pieces from journalists of color, especially about it, but in terms from like white athletes, didn't see much solidarity there either. So you know, that's that's the one of the big parts of the puzzle is that we have to have too much sort of white athlete complicity, I think. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's good, you know, with also the, the piece with the um, the one uh, women's 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 gymnastics team where they wore the bodysuits instead of the kind of bikini cut thing. But, you know, it's, it's one thing to praise like the one good moment, but you always always have to remember all of the bad moments and all the places where things are lacking still. I mean, I guess, I guess in that sense that this dovetails nicely into just the overall question about the politicization of sports, if sports are political or not. Because as you mentioned, you know, the IOC and the general kind of Olympic committee very much stands by the fact that sports are neutral. We're neutral. We have no say in the matter. This discussion has been happening a lot with the Beijing Olympics that are coming up, that this is neutral. This is just about sports. But the reality of it, we see that that's very much the opposite, right? Like that's not actually the case. Absolutely. And I mean, as a historian, I'll, this is what I like kind of start, not when I start, but I talk about it in my sport history classes. I mean, sports have always been political. And, and the reason for that goes back to the, the development of modern sport. And, and when I say modern sport, I mean the creation of concrete rules and regulations to so that sports could be so that, for example, soccer games could be competed or we could have soccer games across many, many different teams and ways that we could sort of codify not only the structure of the rules, but also create a hierarchy of wins and losses and that sort of thing. So there were there were uh, many, many forms of sort of physical activity and even sort of like group matches and group games. But modern sport, again, is when people decided to come together and kind of sit at a table and say, OK, we're going to develop rules that are consistent. We're going to write them down and everybody has to follow them in order to play. And so this happens largely in the 1800s, starting a little bit in the late 1700s, but really in the 1800s. And, and Britain is considered to be kind of the quote unquote father, if we're going to be gendered about it, the quote unquote father of, of modern sport. And the thing that people tend to leave out because uh, historians of British sport, not all the time, but oftentimes frame it in terms of, you know, issues of class, right? So when the uh, British elites and, and British middle class were developing these rules for modern sports, they really wanted to control, again, who was and was not competing in, in an effort to have some kind of quote unquote fairness and fairness in quotes, because this is not fair at all. And so they're looking for they created rules to exclude people. And so they created the am amateurism rules, um, this idea that athletes could not play, they, that they could not earn money from being an athlete. They couldn't earn money from their athletic endeavors. And so that immediately excluded uh, athletes who are professional and who needed to be paid for the labor, which were predominantly working class athletes. But it was also um, athletes. Uh, this is also the time in the 1800s when the British Empire is rolling all over the world. Right. This is the mid to late 1800s, which is the period of high imperialism where we have Britain, we have France, we have Germany and Italy that are in even the U.S. who are trying to expand their empires worldwide. 
And so not only was it not only was the creation of amateurism and the rules of these games, these were ways to exclude the lower class, but also exclude athletes of color, maybe athletes from colonized countries, maybe athletes who used to be enslaved. Right. So trying to keep all these people out, including women. So so it really like from the start, it was a way to politicize bodies and, and kind of create politicize a cultural capital and say only these athletes are allowed to play and all these other ones are excluded under our rules. So just totally politicizing sports from the very beginning. And so that's why when people say, you know, we need to keep politics out of sports or and also when they only point to, for example, like Russia or East Germany, or China, or Qatar, and they say, or Hungary, and they say, look at these awful countries. They are politicizing sport, right? That, that totally, that, that framework it intentionally excludes, you know, Britain, Imperial Britain, it includes the Imperial US, it includes Imperial France, and Germany, Italy, all these other countries who from the beginning were also politicizing sport. And, and so when I was talking earlier about kind of the propaganda, the pro-capitalist, real nationalist propaganda that we in the U.S. especially have about sports and whether sports are political or apolitical, who should be paid, who shouldn't be. I mean, they have these really long roots in, in sort of nationalism, but imperialism as well. And so that is why, I mean, you know, the decision to not play, to, to, sorry, the decision of the NCAA to not pay athletes directly, for example, so the NCAA with its name image, image of likeness, it essentially allows universities, the NCAA, to kind of get off scot-free and say that they don't need to pay athletes. And instead, athletes have to sort of run side gigs and hustles as if they're working for, you know, people have thrown out like Lyft and Uber and stuff like that. It's sort of the gig economy. This is an essentially gig economy. But these are very political economic choices that these people are making. And so it's, again, another very long winded answer. But that's why like sports are inherently political. And, and the, the argument that tries to deny that is inherently a political and largely a white supremacist argument as well. Yeah, I mean, one one additional kind of like parallel aspect to that is the idea of sport washing as well, where nations will use sports to make themselves look good. You mentioned it briefly as well with Hungary kind of amping themselves up to say, look how good our sports are that we've brought back Hungarian athletes that defected. That's how good it is here. And that name has also been, uh, the, the term has been bounced around for upcoming Beijing, that the people think that Beijing is going to really utilize the Olympics event to make themselves look good and kind of push all of the genocide and all of the atrocities that they've been committing to the side to let people forget about it. So could, could you just kind of, I guess, uh, give us a definition of sport washing? I probably should have mentioned it before that we're just talking about it without explaining it. Yeah, no worries. And you know, it's, it's a term that I actually had never really heard of. I think in part because the term sport washing or just sport wash doesn't quite seem to have permeated as much into the history or even the sport history realms. It's kind of something that I've seen more like sociologists, political scientists and, and people in sort of sports studies and kinesiology. They've been using it more. So, I mean, it's it, I think it's useful that you a ask it because like I hadn't, hadn't even heard about it until like six months ago. So apparently, and I say apparently because I'm quoting from something here, it's the process by which a country, I have to use a definition, the process by which a country tries to use sporting events, whether it's hosting of sporting events or simply look how good our athletes did, using, using it as a way specifically to provide sort of a flattering event or story for the media to portray domestically, to portray worldwide, to sort of cover up maybe something that's happened. And so in that way, my understanding, which I'm still working on, it, it's, it's similar and shares some overlap with sport diplomacy. Um, you know, uh, politicians and sports officials and leaders use sport diplomacy partly as a way to demonstrate a positive image about their nation. But it's not just about the positive image. It's about cultural relations. It's also about economic relations and other things. Sport washing seems to be more sort of a media facing thing from my understanding of it. And what's really interesting is that we, as you pointed to, we have all these really modern examples of sport washing. Um, we have Putin, we have China, Putin and Russia, we have China, we have Erdogan and Turkey, we have Orban and Hungary, certainly. But there have been also like historical cases. Um, I mean, Nazi Germany in 1936 hosting the international, you know, that, that Olympic Games and the IOC very famously, you know, going hand in hand with them on it. But then we also have in the post-war sort of Cold War context, we have, it seems that the 1960 Olympic, Summer Olympic Games, which were in Rome, that was probably an, an attempt for the Italian government to kind of show that they were over fascism. 
We also have uh, Japan 1964 hosting the Tokyo Summer Olympic Games. And I was actually thinking, you know, with France and the night and the World Cup is obviously another example with France hosting was it the 1998 World Cup, I think. I was kind of thinking in terms of like, you know, in the decades after the Algerian war, um, the, 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 the news about sort of the torture they were using and sort of the disaster that was their decolonization process. And while also, again, trying to demonstrate, look how peaceful we, we are, look how culturally competent we are through our sports success and sort of ability to host these games. And one reason why I bring up some of those other examples, and there are many, many other ones, I really want to emphasize that sport washing is not something that just authoritarian states use. And they're not just ones that's used by like Russia and China and Qatar, because those are like the kind of go to's and, and rightfully so that we should be focusing on. But there are other ones, too. And I think by only focusing on certain countries, we kind of add to sort of this notion of a Western or sort of American exceptionalism that like, you know, we don't resort to authoritarian, you know, we don't resort to authoritarian politics or we don't resort to fascism, <laughs> uh, you know, eye roll because that's so clearly not the case. I was trying to like kind of think of like, you know, it's almost like a low cost way, but it's not a low cost way to make yourself look good. These things are expensive and it seems almost like is it worth it, which I guess ties into the overall question of Olympics, too, because there's such just money pits that really nothing comes of it. So many past Olympics have been absolute just essentially disasters for the country where they spent all these money on these stadiums only to have them be completely run down within a year. I mean, what what would you say kind of on the future of the Olympics? Like, because that's also been sort of tossed around. It's like, should we keep doing this? Is this still worth it? I mean, I'm firmly in the no. <laughs> I mean, I and I and I say this like I, I, you know, I grew up watching the Summer Olympic Games because I was a swimmer. Like the, the 1996 Atlanta Olympic Games were like the first ones. I think I was I was eight years old, which was, yeah, that was the summer that I started um, the summer right before I started swimming club team all year round. So I really dove into swimming as like what I wanted to do. And just the pun intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, I say this as someone who's like trying to figure out like what is my fandom of the Olympic Games. But like, I just don't think the Olympic Games can be reformed. And reformed in so many ways. I mean, as you pointed out, they're huge money pits. I mean, Montreal just finished paying off like the 1976 Olympic Games. I mean, that that is outrageous. And like taxpayers pay for that stuff, right? Like for people who don't want to pay taxes in the U.S. and don't want government influence, whether that's like a, a federal government, a state government or a local city government. That's such a contradiction, right? The people who, you know, you know, don't want taxes are like apparently willing to take this on or p push the tax pay, you know, pay on some on other people. But, you know, you know, athletes are not making enough money from it. I think it's something like only athletes only only get like four something like four percent or it's a very, very low percentage amount of the, very small. Yeah, yeah. Of that. And then not only I mean, there's also the total devastation of communities of color, houseless communities, just the people, the gentrification that happens, also the ramping up and the justification of using Olympic funding. And I don't mean funding from the IOC per se, although some of it goes to that, but like funding from the local organizing committee that goes to local police forces to justify further crackdowns on marginalized communities. I mean, there are just so many aspects of it that are just so horrific. And, you know, the thing is, is that like the IOC has had enough time to reform, right? If they really wanted to, they've had enough time. And like our, our U.S. Olympic Committee has had enough time to reform and like they haven't really done it. FIFA has had enough time. So, right. So, you know, I feel like at some point we have to say like enough is enough. But the thing is, is, you know, what do we do for athletes? How do athletes make their money? Where do they compete? Like there are a lot of really complicated aspects that have to be thought through. And, you know, we really need to have the interests of athletes, the interests of the communities that would be impacted. We really need to have their interests and, and their voices at the center of any kind of efforts to reform or to kind of construct something different. I'm not hopeful that that would happen, but I think that's what would need to happen. I, I agree there as well. I, I recently wrote an article kind of discussing the options for Beijing. And in general, when I was discussing it with my supervisor, he was of the opinion, you know, like athletes, whatever. That's not really the important case here. Other things are at stake. And it I, I completely did not agree with that because I think athletes are should be a huge part of the discussion. This affects them in, in a lot of ways because this is what they spend their lives doing. And 
even those that were affected by the Moscow Olympic boycott still feel it to this day. They issued an apology to them because it affected them to such a degree and to kind of push that to the side to say, no, no, this is just this is just like upper level discussion. This this doesn't have to, anything to do with the little people. It it I think that's completely un- unfair. But you're right. I think in terms of looking forward, what you know, what is another option if you get rid of the Olympics, I guess start just doing more smaller level world championship level events or something like that? Oh, I mean, maybe. I guess I'm just very, the more that I learn about it, the more like pessimistic I am and the less hope that I have. Because the thing is, is that, you know, a lot of the world cha- the world championships are usually, as far as I know, they're usually run by the international sport federations. So for example, like FIFA does the World Cup you know, FINA, which is the International Swimming Federation, they do, you know, they do the the World Cups and the as far as I know, the World Championships for swimming. And this happens for every, you know, every single sport. And the international federations are not any better than, than the IOC, right? And, and they all work together. Like they do have some competing interests. And that's actually a history I don't know that much about is sort of the, the relationships between international federations and like the IOC, for example, because there's always been a bit of tug of war about who's going to have the power to do this or that. And where's the money going to go? But it's not like they're going to be any more altruistic and sort of anti-racist and all of these, all of these, you know, pro equity, all these things that we need them to be. So I just don't, I just don't know. I mean, like for one kind of concrete example is for swimming, there's the International Swim League, which is goes by the acronym, the ISL. The ISL is trying to forge a new way for professional swimming that actually pays athletes I forget, I forget the amounts. I should have looked this up beforehand, but pays athletes like at least some money every month, which is um, a lot of athletes don't get any kind of standard monthly pay from their government or from their, um, their national sport federation or anybody. But the ISL is funded by a Ukrainian billionaire that has like a lot of shady sort of business dealings going on that are, that are really opaque and really hard to sort of figure out. And actually, I'd love for someone to kind of look about, look into that from sort of a Ukrainian perspective, because I just don't know. And I don't know the language. I don't know enough about how that came about. But, you know, the ISL, um, you know, they were committed to having an, a season in fall 2020 during the pandemic. And, and their swimmers needed to be paid, which like, I, I do think they should have been paid, but what did they do? They collaborated with Orban, you know, fascist Hungary to an, ensure that there was a place for athletes to compete in Hungary. You know, the, the, the state of the hospitals are, have been disastrous in Hungary for a long time and were overloaded with patients and stuff like that. And, you know, they're devoting, uh, much needed money and resources to helping the ISL have their season and diverting it away from the people who need it in the nation. So that's kind of the thing is it even attempts to maybe provide more support for athletes, right? Their politics and their policies in other ways are still really harmful and really negatively impact people's lives. There's also been some rumors of sort of discontent from the swimmers about the ISL that are really not totally clear, I think, because people are afraid to kind of voice their opinions about it. So again, it's just it just sort of shows how hard it is for sort of a genuine attempt to create a holistic kind of sport organization and structure that will pay athletes well and support them and not exploit them, but then also treat the people at, you know, on the ground who are being impacted by hosting a major, um, a major event or major tour series. Yeah. And it's particularly, you know, heartbreaking because I, I personally am a firm believer in sports diplomacy. I, I think it's great that we find these ways to collaborate. Sport is almost a universal language, really. It's definitely a place people can come together and put aside their differences and all of that, like nice, hopeful stuff. And when you far, first started describing the, the swimming competition, I think, great. Yeah, great. And then you added the details. It's like, no, not like that. No, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. And it's just hard. Like I, I co-wrote this piece with my friend who is also a college swimmer and is like a swimming historian. And, you know, one thing that really bothered me, and maybe this was unfair, one point that I I wanted to make in the piece is I kind of was like, you know, this is coming off of the summer of 2020 with the protests against, you know, racial uh, violence. Um, And then there, you know, athletes were signing up and agreeing to participate in a sporting event in a really atrociously racist, sexist government. And, and agreeing to go along with it and essentially complying with sort of being political tools for the government. 
And the thing is, is that again, like athletes need paychecks. So like they do have to weigh all these really difficult decisions and like are athletes aware of what's going on all, all over the world? No, but they do need to know more about who it is that they're working with and, and sort of what their messages are giving off and how they're being politicized. And I know athletes can't do everything, but I, I was a little sad and to sort of see athletes, you know, they're so not, not only they're so eager to travel during the pandemic and so eager to compete during a pandemic, but then also to be willing to work with a very um, white supremacist government like Hungary was just like, oh, again, they don't have much. They don't have many options, though. So I, I really kind of struggle with that a lot. Same with the Olympics, too. It's sort of like with this upcoming Beijing, it's like, why would you want to go to this country that's doing all these things? It's like, well, what what else are we supposed to do? This is the one avenue we have. You know, you think sports are a nice, like fun topic, easy, easy going. No, <laughs> everything has depth to it. Well, let's let's end on a more positive note, perhaps. Um, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about the research coming up, something that you're doing right now that we can keep an eye out for. Yeah. So, I mean, a few things, I guess. One is that um, I'm a co-host of a podcast called The End of Sport. And we focus mainly on college sport and U.S. sport, but we also have an international focus. And we essentially look at all the ways that sports can be harmful to athletes. And then we also try to highlight sort of people who are either doing really good work to like reform sports, even though I, I struggle with whether sports can be reformed or not, but people who are fighting the good fights, people who are advocating for agency and unions and unionizing, you know, we are really, really supportive of that. And we interview all kinds of people and we try to have an episode out once a week. Um, doesn't always happen, but so that's something to look out for. And then in terms of my research, I mean, I'm, I'm starting to work more on my book, which is based on my dissertation. I say start to work on because I took a bit of a break with COVID and just trying to focus on my health and I'm a tenure track faculty. So I have the privilege to be able to do that, which I know so many, so many people do not have because academia is burning hot mess and is exploitative, much like sports. Very, very similar in so many ways. So my book is ten very tentatively called Changing the Global Game, Hungarian Athletes to International Sport During the Cold War. And I essentially look at, I sort of, my aim is to internationalize the history of Hungarian sport and look at how the Hungarian sport community during communism and socialism, how they interacted with the International Olympic Committee and sort of with international sport. And so I look at Hungarian athletes, I look at communist and later socialist sport officials, and then I look at the International Olympic Committee. That sounds fantastic and exceptional. Absolutely looking forward to reading your book whenever it comes out, hopefully soon. Um, and we would love to have you back on for that to chat a little bit more about Hungary, because I, again, I, I knew nothing about Hungarian sports prior to, to reading your work and fascinating stuff, just like really interesting to delve into and, and get into that and kind of connect it to contemporary sports as well. It, it was a very enjoyable process researching this episode. Awesome. Thank you so much. This is such a great conversation. And I wanted to kind of point out some of my personal connections to UT Austin. <laughs> it's a cool place. I know like a number of people there, like Steven Siegel, who just started there. Lorenz Rede, who I know you all know and, and have worked with. And then there are people, um, Dr. Tommy Hunt and the Kinesiology and Health Health Education Department, I think that's what it's called. And then uh, Michael Butterworth in the Center for Sports Communications and Media. So you all have like so many amazing people that work there. UT Austin is like really a place to be. Thank you. <laughs> we like to think that as well. That is that the plug? Is that the nice <laughs> little button on the end of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slavxradio.com. Thank you. 